16. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 24 today. And in preparation for this uh, sermon, I was led down the path of a few articles that caught my attention, particularly through the Voice of the Martyrs publication. And if you do not receive that, I, I would advise you to, to read that. If you want an insider look at the persecuted church around the world, certainly an excellent publication giving us an inside look at that. And I began to think around the world today that there is, exists this extreme hostility to the gospel. We often do not encounter this level of hostility in our context because we are insulated and we are isolated in our Christian dome or in our Christian bubble. And so a lot of times we can't hardly relate to what it means to when a brother or sister says they were jailed for their faith in Jesus or that so-and-so was executed for naming the name of Christ. In fact, we often pray in our prayers. Sometimes we'll say, thank you, God, for giving us the freedom to come in this place to worship without fear of persecution. And I find myself praying that, and I am thankful and grateful to God for a place to come and have the freedom of worship. But in really the reality of it all is that we have no tangible point of reference for persecution. Other than what we might read, other than what we might see on television, in an article or online, we have no tangible, put our hands on this level of persecution. And I know that we mean well, and I'm thankful, and we're often thankful for not being persecuted, but we really actually have no idea what it's like. And in some regards, we look on the inside of our local congregation, and then we look at the grand scope of Christendom itself. And when we do that, and when we examine those dynamics, there should be a tell whether or not we are actually being faithful to the commission that Jesus left to go and make disciples. Because I have learned this over the years of being in ministry, that the more that you stir the ground with the gospel, the more the dirt and dust from the enemy will arise. In other words, the more that we express the gospel of Jesus and the more that we live that out, the more the enemy will push back. Can I get an amen? And so if the church is being left alone and without persecution, have we really been faithful to go and make disciples? Now again, I say this from the inside and from the outside. From a local church examination to the grand scope of Christendom itself, have we been faithful? And as I studied this lesson and as I meditated upon the words One verse comes to mind in conjunction with our verses for today. And it was read in your corresponding scripture reading. And by the way, this should make a Baptist shout for joy. This should make a Baptist turn Pentecostal. Maybe on the outside, but theologically there are some differences obviously. But this should make a Baptist jump for joy. And here are these verses again. I'm going to read them to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Remember that. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. 
perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not abandoned or forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. So no matter what the enemy throws at Christ's church, the Lord will always have the victory. The Lord will always have a remnant. He will always have a people. If this congregation dwindled down to 10, 15 people, Christ would still have a remnant here. And whether it is persecution, whether it is feeling struck down or crushed beneath the heavy load of what we might call cultural despondency towards the gospel, and there is, the Lord will and has won the day through Christ the victor. And coming up on Resurrection Sunday, we should keep that in our mind. Christ is the victor. So every time the word is expounded upon, every time the word is taught, Every time the sacred, the sacred text is brought out and every time there's a handling of the Word of God, maybe that's what's missing in many pulpits today. There ought to be a fire lit in the pulpits of America expounding the truth of Jesus and lifting up who Christ is. So every time there's a handling of the sacred text, there should be a heaviness and yet joy, a heaviness from the expositor and from the listeners as well, that this is God's word. And if this is God's word, then we must listen. And our confidence is in Jesus. And I know that. But every time that we expound from God's word, whether it is in a Sunday school setting, a small group setting, or behind the sacred desk reading the scripture, our knees should knock just a little bit. Because this is a heavy task, friends. And the listeners should sit up and be sober-minded when it's delivered because this is God's Word. God is speaking through His Word. And that would be my prayer for the pulpits across America today, that there would be a revival, a resurgence of preaching the character and nature of Jesus Christ. Repentance of sin. So God is speaking through His Word. If God is speaking through His Word, we must listen. So with that introduction, I'll ask you if you'll stand with me as we read these verses together. I'll be reading from verses 16 through verse 24. And the theme of this sermon today will be when the enemy attacks the gospel, there is power in Jesus. When the attacks of the enemy comes upon the gospel... There is power in the victory of Jesus Christ. So let's read together verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and, and us crying, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And as she kept doing this for many days, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, he turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrate, they said, These men are Jews and they are disrupting our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. 
When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailers to keep them safely. Safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Father, we ask you to bless the reading of this word. God, guide me as we navigate through this text today. God, that you would help me recall what I have studied, Father, and would, would relay it with fervor and fire. Father, I pray that you would uh, give us what we need to hear, and we would respond as your Holy Spirit probes us and draws us to you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, just a bit of rewinding here. Last week, we saw Paul and company. They landed at Philippi. And they were beginning to answer this Macedonian call that we see Paul had a a vision, this Macedonian man crying out for them to come and to to help them, help us. And and how they would help would be to preach the good news of, of Jesus. Didn't know how this exactly was going to look, but they followed the prompting of the Lord God Almighty and they set sail towards Macedonia from Troas and they began this ministry in Philippi. And they... And they found a place to pray and to worship God. And as they found this place of prayer and worship, there was a group of women there by God's providence and sovereignty that were meeting there as well. The apostles began to pray and proclaim one by one. They began to pray and proclaim each of them one by one. And a woman by the name of Lydia overheard what Paul was saying. And she was stricken by the gospel. And the Lord, the Bible says, opened her heart to the truth of Jesus, she believed and was baptized. Not only her, but her household become believers in Jesus Christ, and they were also baptized. And she asked the apostles if they would consider staying a while in her home. In fact, she kept at it. She kept asking them. She prevailed upon them to stay just a little while. And no doubt this invitation was a further elaboration on the richness of Jesus and what it really meant to be a disciple of Jesus. She and her household were hungry to know more about who Jesus is. And even though this is implied in the text, it's not explicitly written by Luke. It's not explicitly written. If you follow the life of the Apostle Paul and the character of The Apostle Paul, we know that Paul was a man on a mission from the Lord. He was a strategic man on a mission for the Lord. And he would never oblige Lydia to stay in her home unless there was a gospel initiative to it. To be all things to all men so that some might come to know and some might be saved. This was Paul's marching order. This was Paul's a framework for ministry. He would never stay unless there was some gospel initiative, unless they were hungry to know more and to be discipled. Following this occasion, they left the house of Lydia and they are furthering looking to answer this Macedonian cry for help. That's why they're there. And to be sure, God had more for them to do other than just this one household, and He did. And as they are finding another place of prayer, they are confronted with a demon-possessed girl. As the title of the sermon says, the enemy attacks but... And I consider this to be a gospel conjunction when the enemy attacks but. But what? There's two things I would like to express, two truths I would like to express in this text today that when the enemy attacks, you can look and see these things occur as a child of God through Christ Jesus. So when the enemy attacks or the enemy attacks, but the name of Jesus is superior. 
The name of Jesus is superior. Now, before we look at these next three verses together, I want you to know what I mean when I say the name of Jesus. When you hear someone say, or you, when you hear me say this morning, there is power in the name of Jesus, it isn't simply because there was a man named Jesus in ancient Jerusalem and the name alone has power in it. There was a lot of people whose name was Jesus. Who I'm speaking to is the Son of God. Who I'm speaking about is Jesus Christ, Messiah, Son of Mary and Joseph, Son of God, who died on the cross and who three days rose again. Therein lies the power of Jesus, not just simply in the name alone. It is what this name represents and what he has done. It is not simply because there was a man named Jesus in ancient Jerusalem, and in that name there is power in it alone, like some sort of spell that we sprinkle over every area of our life. No, there is power not only in the name, but what Jesus has done. And so to invoke the name of Jesus means this is no ordinary man that we are talking about. He has broken the chains of death and he has broken the chains of sin by his resurrection and in him lies the victory and triumph and at the name of Jesus, the demons and devils tremble. In fact, it is no contest at all. To say that the devil and Jesus are fighting some cosmic battle like Satan is fighting Jesus in a fist fight, would be like a piece of pine straw having a fist fight with a hurricane. It's no contest. It's like a gnat on the back of a, of a tiger. And even describing their character and nature in those ways still fails to speak of the surpassing nature of Jesus Christ. You ever see those pictures where that have circulated. If you have these on your Facebook, please take them off. These pictures of, of Jesus and the devil in an arm wrestling match. You ever seen that? As if there is even a contest. Satan couldn't even walk in the shadow of Jesus our Lord, much less engage in some type of cosmic arm wrestling battle there is no contest. The devil is a created being and Jesus is God in flesh. There is no contest. There is no yin, there is no yang fighting with good or evil because Jesus has conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave by his resurrection. Amen. So in verse 16 it says that they were going to this place of prayer and they were met with this girl who had a spirit of divination. She was demon-possessed. And she brought her owners a lot, of, a lot of gain, a lot of money by her quote-unquote fortune-telling. I believe Luke should have had this in quotations. The apostles are looking for a place to pray and they're looking for a place to worship. And they are met with this slave girl here, the servant girl. And they are still ministering in Philippi. In fact, you will see momentarily that they will be thrown in a Philippian jail towards the end of our text today. They are thrown in this Philippian jail. So they're still ministering here in this area. The point being is this. They had just saw a household come to know the Lord Jesus. They had just saw Jesus glorified, Jesus magnified, people brought from death into life, and it did not take long at all before the enemy began to oppose the furtherance of the good news. It doesn't take long. 
It doesn't take long for the devil to see a place to try to oppose the furtherance of the gospel. And so they are met with this demon-possessed girl who had some perceived type of, of knowledge of the future. I would say this is sleight of hand or deception, if you will. Some perceived type of foreknowledge and was beginning to tell the fortunes of the people. In, in fact, she was, like the, she was like the Miss Cleo of Philippi. Now, if you don't know who Miss Cleo is, go home and Google her. I'm not going to get into that. But she is like the Miss Cleo of, of Philippi. The word used that you might see here for divination, a spirit of divination, is the word that we borrow in our English, the word python, which can be argued that a snake is a universal archetype of evil or, or disaster or something to that effect. It is a universal archetypical symbol of evil, the snake or the python. And so the python was a name that was given uh, to a serpent that kept guard at Delphi, slain by Apollo in Greek mythology. This geographically would make sense that they are in Philippi and heading towards Macedonia as a whole. The name Python was used to symbolize a, get this, a prophetic demon. And so the soothsayers who also practice ventriloquism. And by the way, we get our word ventriloquism from speaking from the belly. So whoever is speaking is not having control over what they say. So in this case, it is a demon-possessed girl who kept on messing with the apostles. And by the way, I don't think that the devil has any special powers in this way, but very deceptive, very sleight of hand. And you might disagree with me on that point, but the devil is very deceptive. The enemy is very deceptive, as we will see here in just a moment. And by the way, the devil will do that to you too. And if you don't believe it, live for Jesus, draw close and cling to Christ and see how much the enemy will mess with you. Does the enemy mess with you? There is power in the name of Jesus. I just said it. The name of Jesus is superior. The work of Christ is superior. So let's look at this next verse, verse 17. And here's how we know that the enemy will poke and prod anything that he can do to strip the power of the gospel. And he can't do that, but he can mess with you as you walk along with Jesus. Look at verse 17. Uh, I'm going to try to read this in this mocking tone uh, that is carried by Luke. She followed Paul and us and she cried out. She said, These men are servants of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, I don't know if I adequately carried this mocking tone that she carried as she's going behind them, scoffing at them, prodding at them, and, and, and probing at them. There's this progressive language that keeps on, that, that is used, that she kept on crying out. She's following them, mocking them, and scoffing at their message. In fact, a clear indication that this was a deceiving demon was a misrepresentation of the message. And by the way, you can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve was first confronted by the serpent. And what is the one lie that the devil starts off with with, with Adam and Eve? Did God really say this? Did God really say this? Did God really present this? Did, is God's word really true? It's a clear indication that this was a deceiving demon. They were twisting what Paul and company were really preaching. What were they really preaching? They were preaching that Jesus is the way of salvation. As she was screaming, 
that they were preaching that Jesus is a way of salvation. See the difference? There is, there is no definite article in this Greek construction of this sentence. There is an absence of the definite article in the Greek. So she was saying, just like the deceivers do today, that there is more than one way, more than one way for salvation. More than one way to reach God other than Jesus. And by the way, that is an age-old tactic of the enemy. That is an age-old lie of the enemy that is still, in fact, engaged in our culture today, this pluralistic way of thinking that there is more than one way to find salvation in God alone. It's an age-old tactic of the enemy to twist the Word of God just enough, to twist God's Word just enough to where it would deceive those who are not in tune with God's Word, who are not in tune with, with Jesus, and, and twist it just enough to where it sounds religious and inspirational. I can have a conversation with Jehovah's Witness and say, yeah, Jesus is the way of salvation, but their Jesus is vastly different than our Jesus. After a while, the people of God, just like Paul did here, I believe that we need to put our foot down. We need to get fed up with half-truths, which is not truths at all, and get fed up with misrepresentation of God's character. People misrepresenting Christ, misrepresenting who God is. As Paul did, he gets annoyed, and here's what happened. As she kept on doing this for days, okay, she kept on prodding and scoffing this demon. And Paul had enough. It says he was greatly annoyed. You see that in the text? It is like a big, you ever had a big kitchen rug that you took out back and hung up and you beat it with a broom? You ever had that? And dust became to fly out. Here's the picture. He was worn out by this demon and was consistently hammered, if you will, annoyed, greatly annoyed, like a beat out rug that you got in the kitchen that has so much, too much dust on it. Greatly annoyed, he turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour, that instant. And I believe that the girl, the demon-possessed girl, was allowed to keep at this for a few days. And there's a couple reasons I believe that this happened. Paul, being a strategist, was waiting for the best strategic time to confront this girl. Remember, everything for Paul is for the furtherance of the gospel. And secondly, and probably most importantly, the Holy Spirit had not moved him to act yet because if the Holy Spirit did, he would have rebuked this girl as soon as, soon as she said this. And why is that important? Why is that important for you and I? What a tragedy it would be for the Apostle Paul, for you or I or anyone to react without the power of God empowering the encounter. What good would it be for a preacher to stand and herald God's word without the anointing, without the power of God? What good would it be for us to go out on outreach, to go out to witness to somebody without the power of God, without the Holy Spirit? What good would it be for us to go out in our own power and try to build some type of, of quasi-kingdom of God in our own power and strength? And as strong as we might think that we are in our faith, and there are some people in this sanctuary today in this church who I would consider that are strong in their faith, as strong as you might think that you are in your faith, without the power of God, the devil would eat you alive. See Acts 19, verse 12 through 17, the sons of Sceva. See that. 
And Paul was tired of this ridicule and this misrepresentation and turned and he rebuked the evil spirit. And as I was working through this text and this passage, one question kind of kept probing my mind and heart is, when, when am I going to get annoyed with misrepresentation of Jesus? When will you get annoyed when people misrepresent Jesus? And speak up on behalf of the sovereignty of God and speak up on the character and nature of Jesus in a loving way. Because if you do not speak up, the devil will twist the word of God. He will pepper it with all type of inspirational speech. He will make it sound super religious and will be so far distorted from biblical truth that you could hardly recognize it. The enemy will twist scripture just enough to make it sound inspirational, make it sound good. But you know, he isn't doing this on his own. He uses people. By the way, he uses preachers. He uses teachers. God, the enemy uses people, even in the church, to twist just enough of, of the word of God to make it sound inspirational, but it's far removed from biblical truth, and you'll never grow in your walk with the Lord using twisted scripture. Do you know every time that a person speaks on behalf of the Lord and does not honor Christ, that that is taking the Lord's name in vain? Do you realize that misrepresenting Jesus in any way is taking the Lord's name in vain? Think about that the next time you pray over your meal or the next time you pray before a, a ball game. Or the next time you pray over any event. Think about that the next time you pray over those things. Because if the name of Jesus comes out of your mouth and it does not have worshipful intent, beware. Beware. You know, we will be up in arms if we watch a television show and it is replete with expletives and cussing here and there and Cussing here, somebody cussing here. But you know what is worse than hearing a, a somebody just, I mean, cuss like a sailor? What is worse than that is taking the Lord's name in vain. Using the name of Jesus in an inappropriate and unworshipful way. But then another thought occurred to me. The attacks of the enemy. The enemy is attacking our families. He's attacking marriages. He's attacking churches. You know how many churches in North Carolina right now are without pastors? Any guess? 400 churches in North Carolina right now are with pastors. 10 in our own association. The enemy is attacking churches. He's attacking our nation. You name it. When will you, follower of Christ, have enough and get fed up and annoyed with the enemy taking a foothold in your life? We have victory in Jesus. So whenever you hear that 33% of Christian marriages end in divorce, and by the way, that is, that is lower than it used to be. It used to be close to 50%. When you hear that 33% of Christian marriages end in divorce, you can say, I have had enough. I'm going to love my wife. I'm going to love my husband. We're going to love each other as Christ loved the church. When you hear a person misrepresent salvation through Christ alone by saying something like this, you need to do this thing, or you need to do that thing, you need to work here, you need to work there, 
in order to be saved, you can generally correct them in the name of Jesus. No, it is through faith alone in Jesus Christ that we are saved as we repent of our sins before a holy and righteous God. It is not the works you do. See, Paul described in 2 Corinthians this thorn in the flesh. You remember reading that? In the second letter of Corinthians, so Paul describes this thorn in the flesh. Now, we are not told what this thorn is. The scholars have written about it for ages. In fact, we're not told because it's really none of our business. This thorn in the flesh that he had. We can say, likewise, a thorn in my side is when people misuse the name of Jesus inappropriately, in an irreverent way, or when people misrepresent my Lord, my Lord Jesus. Now, Paul was annoyed by this persistent evil spirit, and he rebuked it. When will you, church, say, I have had enough? This is why you study the character and nature of God. This is why we study. This is why we read God's Word. This is why we get in Scripture. It keeps you from saying things like this. God helps those who help themselves. Is that a scripture? Is that a verse in the Bible? In fact, that is anti-gospel. Because if I help, could help myself, I would not need Jesus to go to the cross. It keeps us from saying dumb things like that. And if you say that, I'm sorry to offend you, but it's not in scripture. God helps those who help themselves. And there are myriads of other examples and if this was true, no one would be saved and no one would grow in their walk with Jesus because we do not possess the ability to help ourselves. Or Jesus would never have had to come. And this might sound cliche to you. It might sound like some insider Christian language. And you might have heard this from this pulpit plenty of times. But I would simply say, read your Bible more. And I need to read my Bible more. And you might say, well, I've heard that a million times from you, Pastor Larry. Is it true? Is it still true? Is it still applicable that we need to be in God's Word more and read about the character and nature of God so we will put Christ up where He needs to be? I think that is a lot of what's going on in our churches today is there is not a high view of God. The preaching is not in a way that gives glory to God. It is, it is not in this vertical reaction, if you will. It is more horizontal. We need more horizontal or more vertical preaching that honors Jesus and lifts Him up upon high. And Paul was annoyed by this persistent evil spirit. He rebuked it. And when will you say, I've had enough of this? Well, we also know that when the enemy attacks, that there is safety in Jesus. There is safety in Jesus, in life or in death. As we would say, for a child of God in Christ, any way the cookie crumbles, there is life in Christ. In this life or in the life to come, it is a win-win situation for the child of God in this life to glorify Him or in the life to come in Jesus. Verse 19 says, Their owners had saw their hope of gain was gone, their livelihood was gone. And they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And I cannot stress enough to you how much this reminds me of the prosperity gospel, the prosperity gospel gang. 
which is not a gospel at all. The name it, claim it gang, the Benny Hens of the day, the, the Creflo Dollar, the Joyce Meyer, the John Hagees, these guys who are prosperity gospel that only want your dollar. They don't care about your spiritual vitality or your health. They don't care about that at all. All they want is your dollar in their bank account. And I would also submit to you that this is not a gospel at all. I am convinced it is driven by demons. If you don't believe me, look into the eyes of Kenneth Copeland. They make their money off of exploiting the weak, the weakness of others. It is also no mistake that Paul uses the same verb to come out here to describe that their gain was gone. It came out from them. So Luke is linking, he's bridging the two together, their money or their evil gain, their gain to this evil spirit's working of prosperity. And the prosperity gospel is evil. Here is another case where the people cared more for the money and the profit than they did for God, which, by the way, is a degradation of the imago Dei. The image of God is a tearing down of the image of God, being created in the image and likeness of God. It is like spitting in God's face. which is a total reversal from what we see in Lydia's case. Genuine conversion, genuine repentance, genuinely seeking Christ. She was generous. She offered her home. She offered her resources. But the slave girl's owners, they seized Paul and Silas, and they drugged them to trial before the magistrates, the civil magistrates who kept the, the peace of the city what we call the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And they'll keep this peace at any cost. The preservation of the peace of the city. The Bible says in verse 20, they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews. They are disrupting our city. They have advocated customs that are not lawful for Romans to accept or to practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off of them and Gave them orders to beat them with rods, and we imply that so they did. So Paul and company are hated, number one, for their ethnicity. And they are hated for the exclusive message of Christ Jesus. They are hated for the message of exclusivity in Christ. And by the way, that has not gone away today. This is important in this scenario since the Greco and Roman way of religion was polytheistic. Now, what does that mean? Polytheistic means just many deities or many gods. And so to deny the other gods was to be atheistic in the eyes of the council and the magistrates and the people of the city and thus condemn the apostles. Do you know that the early church was condemned and accused of being atheistic? Yes, because they denied the Roman pantheon of gods. And we see that here in this occasion as well. And they disrupted the flow and peace of the city. Now, I will say this, that there are a lot of resemblances to the pluralistic world that we live in today that says there is more than one valid religion, more than one way to reach God. And by the way, this pluralistic undertone, they hate the message of the gospel. They hate the message that Jesus Christ alone saved. If you say there is no other name under heaven in which men might be saved than the name of Jesus, they hate that message. They abhor that message. They hate the exclusive 
claims of Jesus Christ alone. In short, the gospel of Jesus, it disrupts this whole pluralistic worldview. It forces one to decide upon truth or fable. They are set up with this this age-old dilemma. And what C.S. Lewis said, they are confronted with either Jesus as Lord, lunatic, or liar. He's either Lord, he is either a lunatic, or he is a liar. And so they are destroying the peace, so to speak, with the gospel truth. Their interlocutors or their persecutors of the apostles, they said that these men go against the citizens and the customs of, of Rome and have began to, uh, began to stir up the city. They are against the the, uh, the pagan gods, they're against the pagan rituals. And so they rally up this crowd who comes and rips their clothes off and beats them and throws them into prison. And of course, there are similarities to our culture today. And we live in a country that touts having religious freedoms and religious liberties. And I'm glad of that. We live in a country where we are granted true religious freedom of religion. That is unless unless you want to speak openly and freely about Jesus as the exclusive way of salvation. A person can go on the street and they can protest and speak freely about abortion and be an advocate for it. They could be an advocate for the LBGTQ uh, community about marriage and all that. And they can go and they can freely march. And we as the church have not taught theologically or biblically about these things because I don't think we really know how. But let a person stand and preach the truth of Jesus and the world turns against them. There is freedom of speech. There is freedom of religion unless it is about the liberating truth of Jesus. And then the world says, go get them. Where are the advocates for free speech and freedom of religion when the Christ follower preaching Jesus is punched in the face for preaching Christ? Where's the advocate then? And I don't have to remind you, this is the backwards and twisted world that we live in. And somehow we have have grown cold to these type of things that are going on in our world. And yet the Apostle Paul faced a similar scenario here. Look what unfolds next. They had inflicted many blows upon them. They threw them in prison. And the jailer was ordered to keep them safe. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison, which is some grace there, and fastened their feet in these wooden stocks. The warden had them placed in this innermost cell of the prison, or what we might call the dungeon, a dungeon. Their feet was placed in these wooden stocks, attached to the wall that they could inflict any type of torture if they wanted to at any time. The prison scene gives a credence to the level of threat that they saw with Paul and company posed to the pagan and sinful ways of life. Again, when you preach the gospel and you begin to plant the seeds of gospel in the ground, the dust and dirt of the enemy rise up very very quickly. And so here they are, the gospel offends, It disrupts this way of life, this comfortable way of life. See, the gospel is offensive to a sinful way of life. uh, The gospel of Jesus offends sin. 
And here's Paul and Silas who have been beaten with stripes, probably one less than 40. See 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. 24. Living for Jesus. And we know according to church history and according to the Bible that living for Jesus can sometimes, many times, can get you in trouble. The question is, do you get in trouble? Or have you gotten in trouble with the law, with you've gotten in trouble for whoever it might be, for the cause of the gospel? And I remember hearing a question like this, and I don't know if I'll pose it right. This is in my own wording. Somebody said something to the effect of this in a question. If being a Christ follower were illegal, would there be enough evidence to find you guilty? But see, we know that there are places in the world where there, the gospel proclamation is illegal. Where it is illegal to be a follower of Christ, at least live it out openly. Places like Afghanistan, Qatar, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran, India, etc., and these places can get you arrested for claiming to be a follower of Jesus. Well, how about a Bible? How about, how about a Bible? I, we have the privilege. We are saturated. you got a Bible in your pew. We are saturated with Bibles. I, we can look at our phone. I can look on my iPad right now. I can look on my phone and read the Bible. Do you know in some of those countries I just mentioned and others, the only way to get a Bible in that country is by smuggling it in and undercover? The Bible is illegal there. And over church history, thousands of followers of Christ have been arrested and killed for the proclamation of the gospel. And I could not adequately catalog all the accounts, numerous, numerous accounts. But then we are engaged with this gospel conjunction once again. But there is victory in Christ and Christ is still at work through the persecuted church. In fact, I would often say and advocate that the persecuted church is growing more healthy than the unpersecuted church. And by the way, as we set this up, there is no persecuted church and the unpersecuted. It is just simply the church. Christ is still at work. Ming Jai, a South Korean resident, shares his story with Voice of the Martyrs of how he helped smuggle in Bibles. And one family that was given a Bible, in fact, there was eight Bibles given out, and one family of 27 come to faith in Jesus because one man was obedient to hand out a Bible. So Ming Jai said this. He said, in North Korea, no one trusts each other. He even suspected his wife of being a spy. He said, we have to be very cautious about how we think and always careful with our words. I still have that kind of tendency. I get a little nervous as he's looking back and forth in the room. Ming Jai lives in the most gospel-restricted nation on earth. But just five months after he came to know the Lord Jesus, he was asked if he would be willing to smuggle in a shipment of just ten Bibles. And even though there was this looming persecution over his shoulder that he could be arrested and even killed and thrown into a concentration camp, he said, now I believe in God, and in God everything is possible. And he said, I, 
I can do anything He wants, even if it looks difficult. Maybe God will just do His work. Man, if we could harbor and bottle up that mentality in the churches today. So he agreed. Not long afterwards, he had received the first ten Bibles. And he began to hold these Bibles and wonder, how am I going to distribute them? And so he kept them hidden for quite some time until God opened the door on how he might be able to pass them along. And that door opened up. Not long after, he began to find a place to where he can bring these Bibles. He was walking through a village one day, and he recognized a man that was whistling a familiar tune. This tune that he was whistling was called The Trusting Heart to Jesus Clean. Ming Jay made a mental note of the address, and he decided to go back under the cover of night And after midnight, he wrapped up these eight Bibles and he left them on this man's doorstep, the man who had whistled this tune, the trusting heart to Jesus cleaned. And he laid these eight Bibles there on this man's doorstep. Some time had passed and Ming Jai returned to China, but he was arrested and he was extradited to North Korea. In prison, he met a friend who had been arrested as well for being a follower of Jesus. They reminisced or they called up as best as they could in this prison setting and come to find out that this man, his prison cellmate, he was a friend to the man who had received those eight Bibles. Isn't it amazing how God works sometimes? How God orchestrates things for His sovereignty and for His glory. So Ming Jai's friend and now cellmate tells him this, and I quote, he said, that his uncle had given the eight Bibles to his relatives, who had then committed their lives to Christ. The entire family of 27 people began to gather secretly at night to worship God and to read and to discuss the Scriptures. But one night a neighbor overheard the believers singing hymns and reported them to the authorities. The secret pet police rallied their home and arrested everyone. Now, a long story short, they were all eventually set free from the concentration camps. They were arrested. They were detained in these concentration camps. Ming Jai is giving this report to the Voice of the Martyrs publication. And Ming Jai's prayer is an inspiring prayer. And I want to share this prayer with you because it is applicable on so many points. It is simple and yet applicable. Here's what Ming Jai said. Here's his prayer. He said, I just want for North Korea people to hear the gospel and share the gospel. This is my only prayer. And we could say that in our context. I just want for my neighbor. I just want for the people in our community, even in our church, to hear the gospel, the true gospel, and then to share the gospel. And that is our prayer. Regardless of our circumstances, regardless of where we are, regardless if we feel pressed down, persecuted, at the end of our rope, circumstances in life have got us pressed down. I want to remind you of this word that Christ is the victor. Christ has the victory. See, Paul and Silas were in prison. And see, I don't want to end on this note because if you're students of God's word, you know what happens with Paul and Silas. You know how God intervenes. So I don't want to end on this note of them just being in prison without there being no resolution here. 
I don't want to end on this note, so I want to end on one of hope by reading the verse for next week's sermon. And here it is. The Bible says in verse 25, After midnight, Paul and Silas were singing the woe is me's. They were singing nobody knows. No, it says they were praying and they were singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. So yes, the enemy attacks, but the name and work of Jesus is far superior. Yes, the enemy attacks, and we're not giving enemy, the enemy any credit. We're not giving him any glory. But we know that he attacks God's people. But there is safety in Jesus, in this life or in death, which really for the child of God is life anyway. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time in your word and the reassurance that we have. Yes, we know that the enemy has attacked the church on so many levels. But we also know that it is sifted through your holy hand and there is purpose. There is purpose for growing your kingdom. There's purpose for growing your church and your people. And so I pray, God, that we would understand that even when Satan attacks God, that it will ultimately be used for your glory. What this world intended for evil, what the enemy intended for evil, God, you used for good. And we rest upon that. And there might be one here today who does not know the saving grace of Jesus. I pray, God, that today they would know Christ as Lord. They would bow at the foot of the cross and give their sin to you and repent of it and turn from it. Father, for the one who is going through adversity or they feel as if they are pressed down, God, there is hope and victory in you. And Father, I just pray that you would, you would remind them, you have reminded them of that this morning through your word, that there is power in the name of Jesus who has defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave and lives forevermore. And because he lives, we can face tomorrow. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.